Friends, we are in Psalm 67, and we're starting a new series today. We're going to spend the next five weeks talking about my third favorite subject in the world, which is money. We're going to be talking about money in the church. And as you know, we typically preach through books of the Bible. We do expository preaching. We take chapter by chapter, verse by verse, and we preach through the text. But in between books, oftentimes it's great to dive into a topic and see what does the whole Bible say about this particular topic that we're talking about. And so we're going to focus on money, and we're going to do that for two reasons. Number one, we want to be honest with our Bibles. Our Bibles say a ton about money and wealth and possessions, and a church or a pastor that doesn't talk about money just isn't being honest with the text. So we do it to be honest with our Bibles, and secondly, we do it to be honest with our hearts. Jesus says, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And it sounds like he got that twisted up. It sounded like he meant to say, hey, where your heart is, that's where you're going to give your treasure. But no, I think he said wisely, where your treasure already is, where you invest it and give it, your money, your time, your talents, that's where your heart has already gone. It already dwells in the place that you have invested most. And so if you want to know where your heart is, check your pocketbook. That's where it dwells. And so to go through this series is to be honest with our Bibles, but it's also to be honest with our hearts. Now, I want to say another thing because we're going to spend five weeks here and hopefully you grabbed one of those nifty journals on your way in to take with you and study and think about these things. We're going to do five weeks on money matters and then we're going to spend five weeks when we really begin to unveil uh, the plan for our new space. So we purchased Hugie Street and we've done the demolition and now we're gearing up to do the renovation there. And so we're going to really slow down as a church and take five weeks to orient ourselves around the vision and to pray and plan and give towards building in that space so that we can be in there, Lord willing, early next year. And so maybe the suspicious among us are thinking, wait a minute. We're doing five weeks on giving to the church, and then we're going to do five weeks of a generosity initiative giving to the building. Like, is this 10 weeks of hitting us up for money week after week? And I would say a hearty no. That's not the theme of either series. You're not going to hear that come through because our budget, church budget, is in the strongest place it has ever been in the history of the church. You all have given generously above and beyond. And I have no doubt at all that we will see the money come in for the renovation of the church space, that God will provide that through the generosity of his saints as he's already done all of these nine years that we've existed. I don't lose a minute of sleep over the church budget or the building campaign. What I would lose a minute of sleep over is the nature of our hearts and their connectedness to money when Jesus says plainly in the parable of the soils, you can have somebody who says they're a believer, walks like a believer, sings like a believer, and wealth and the cares of this world can grow up and begin to choke them before your very eyes. What would it gain a church if we could meet our fiscal budget, build our brand new building with everything we want, and lose our souls in the process. Is it not wise? Is it not caring? 
Is it not the shepherding thing to do to pause when we can to think about where is my heart, how is it connected to my money, and how do I live freely in these things? The devil hates this. He does not want us talking about this. He wants you to leave your little journal here at church, not take it home with you, not talk to your spouse, not talk to your friends, not to engage with money. It is so important to our hearts. In fact, when I woke up this morning and was about to walk out the door to come preach on money, there was a bear on my front stoop blocking me from preaching. I looked again, and it was actually a stray dog, but it was a, a, like a really big black dog. It was like a St. Bernard Rottweiler mix, but I thought, is this the devil impersonated to keep me from preaching? No, the devil does not want us to hear these things. The dog found its owner, and everything's okay. Uh, I found a child's notes after the service and says, God blesses us, God blesses others, pastor had a bear on his front stoop. So she got the three points of the sermon. Praise God for that. But realize in these next five weeks, there will be spiritual fireworks because you are, you are testing enemy territory when you begin to talk about money in the church. So to begin with, I want to start with the blessings of money, which come to us in Psalm 67. Look there with me. May God be gracious to us and bless us and make his face shine upon us that your way may be known on the earth, your saving power among all nations. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. Let the nations be glad and sing for joy for you judge the peoples with equity and guide the nations upon the earth. Let the peoples praise you, O Lord. Let all the peoples praise you. The earth has yielded its increase God, our God, shall bless us. God shall bless us. Let all the ends of the earth fear him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, since you invite us to do this, we ask, bless us. Be gracious to us. Cause your face to shine upon us. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, there's a great author Randy Alcorn. Some of you maybe have read some of his books. He's got a very slender book called The Treasure Principle. Has anybody read that little book? It's probably 50 or 60 pages on money and possessions. It's wonderful. I recommend it. One of our elders reads it every single year. So if you want just a little dive into to money and generosity, The Treasure Principle by Randy Alcorn. But then he also has a much bigger book, Money, Possessions, and Eternity. And in his massive study of money in the Bible, he says that there are 2,350 verses in the Bible on money, wealth, and possessions. That is more verses than faith and prayer put together. Now, chew on that for a little minute. Clearly, money matters to God. It's not this like dirty little thing that we have to do from nine to five to make ends meet and put on the table and then we come and present our spiritual selves to God. Money, our money, the money that we have in our pocket, the money that we have in our bank account, the money that we owe on our credit card, money matters to God. It matters when we earn it. It matters when we save it, when we invest it, when we spend it, when we give generously. All of it matters to God. He cares about our money. And clearly, he talks about our money often. But of course, when the Bible has so much to say about money, it can be a benefit and it can be a detriment. Because the Bible says so much about money, 
You could even take verses out of context and they seem to say the opposite thing in the Bible about money. Because of that, I'm convinced that we could bring any presupposition, any idea of money to the Bible and find its support. You could already make up your theology of money and you will find a verse or a couple of verses that you could take out of context and they will support whatever you think about money. And clearly, people have done that and abused and used the scriptures for their own ends with respect to money. I think Pastor Kevin Young puts this really well. He states the problem in a longish quote when he says, on the one hand, it's easy to see where prosperity theology comes from. Take a few promises of the Mosaic Covenant out of their national context. Take the promise in Malachi 3 about throwing open the storehouses of heaven. Mix in some of Jesus' statements about receiving whatever you ask for in faith. And you can bake up a little health and wealth gospel. Who has not seen someone make that and pull that out of the oven? On the other hand, it's possible to come up with an imbalanced austerity theology. That's clever. Prosperity theology, austerity theology, extreme frugality. Point out that Jesus had nowhere to lay his head. Turn to the story of the rich young ruler. Stir in the parable of the rich fool and you'll have a theology that says money is bad and so are those who have it. You could make a biblical argument that God loves rich people. Just look at Abraham, Job, Zecharias. Look at the way he blesses obedient kings. Look at the vision of cosmic delight in the garden and in the age to come. And you could just as easily make the case, the biblical argument that God hates rich people. Just look at the rich man and Lazarus. Look at the book of James and look at Luke's version of the Sermon on the Mount. Do you see how complex this is? If the Bible has so much to say, we could fall into the error of just picking out what we wanted to say about our money. And so I do this with trepidation to spend five weeks saying, Lord, please, by your spirit, show us what your Bible says about money. Show us it's important. Show us its value. Show us its blessing. Show us its danger. Show us our responsibility with it. Show us, by your spirit, how we as believers relate to our money. And to do that, we're going to start in Psalm 67. And we're going to start with the good news, the blessing of wealth and money. And the structure of this psalm couldn't be more simple. God blesses us to bless others. God blesses us, point one, point two, to bless others. Psalm 67 begins and ends with God's blessing on his people, the church. Verse one sounds like a prayer. May God do this. Verse six sounds like an answer prayer. The earth has yielded. It has done this. Verse seven sounds like a promise. God shall do this. So believer, whether you are in the asking stage or the answered stage or the hanging on to God's promise stage, you are walking into the marvelous grace that God desires to bless you, believer. He desires to bless you. He's already made up his mind. He doesn't need to consult with anyone. Once he has given us the sacrifice of his son, Paul reasons, how will he not also in him freely give us all things? Romans 8.32. Check out those delicious verbs in verse one and tell me with a straight face you don't want them. Look at verse one in your Bible. 
Be gracious to us. Bless us. Make his face shine upon us. Can you imagine a life dripping with the blessing and the grace and the shining, smiling face of God upon us? What would my walk with God look like? What would my fight with sin look like? What would my household look like? What would my relationships look like? What would my job and my investments and my employment and my generosity look like? God wants to bless the church. He wants to bless believers. Now, I've got two comments about this blessing that we need to be aware of. Number one, don't overthink God's blessing. And number two, don't over-spiritualize God's blessing. He intends to bless, don't overthink it, and don't over-spiritualize it. Number one, don't overthink it. I think one of my big frustrations with the book of Psalms is that it doesn't come with an instruction manual. It's just the thing itself, and there don't seem to be any rules about how to use this thing which means that any believer or believer-to-be could pick up the Psalter and ask for God's blessing. A believer can just start pronouncing Psalm 67 over anyone they meet. They can pray it over their family. They can pray it over their friends. They can pray it in their workplaces, everybody in their life. And I want to ask, well, what about sinners? And what about people who are already rich? And what about people who ask with wrong motives? And what about people who don't deserve blessings? And what about people that aren't blessing other people with the blessings they've already got? You mean to tell me there's no caveats? There's no fine print? There's no Surgeon General's warning on Psalm 67? It's just here in a book and anybody can take it and use it and pray it and give it and spread it far and wide? And the answer is... Yeah, you can. It's here. It's a prayer manual. Anybody can pick this thing up and begin to pray this thing and trust that God will do his will. If God gives us a prayer to pray, let the church do the praying and let God do the sorting, right? Let the church do the praying and let God do the sorting. Don't, don't, Take this prayer and modify it depending on what you think God needs to do for you or another person. Don't, don't limit the blessings of Psalm 67 because you're thinking about, well, if this is misused or mishandled or mistrusted and, and you begin to pray less prayers than God gave you to pray, why don't we just pray what God told us to pray and why don't we trust that God will do what God's going to do with his generosity? We do the praying, he does the sorting. Don't overthink it. Well, the second thing is, don't over-spiritualize God's blessing. Don't make purely spiritual what God intends to be spiritual and material. We think we're doing God a favor. We think we don't want to mix him up in worldly affairs or dirty things like money. And so we think, okay, he said blessing, but let's turn that into a spiritual blessing. And I'm saying, don't do that. If the text doesn't say do that, then don't you do that. Don't over-spiritualize what he's saying. Sometimes we have the opposite problem. Sometimes we take a spiritual promise from God and we materialize it. That's the, the basketball player on the free throw line quoting Philippians 4.13 to himself. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And he makes the shot. That's over-materializing a promise. But 
But don't turn around and do the opposite thing and over-spiritualize because you think God's going to get his hands dirty in our money. Verse 6 says don't do it. The earth, the physical earth, the blessings of the earth, the materialism of the earth has yielded its increase. God our God shall bless us. It's not just spiritual. It is material too. And that is supported all throughout scripture. Proverbs 3 and Malachi 3 throws down the challenge as we give generously, quote, your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats bursting with new wine. I don't think we're talking about spiritual wine. I think we're talking about material wine in Proverbs 3.10. Proverbs 10.3, the Lord does not let the righteous go hungry. 10.22, the blessing of the Lord makes rich. Ecclesiastes 5.19, Everyone also to whom the Lord has given wealth and possessions and power to enjoy them and to accept his lot and rejoice in his toil, this is the gift of God. Your wealth, your possessions, your health and mental stability to enjoy them, all of those things come from God. All that to say, when God gets done doing Psalm 67, there will not be a single blessing or benefit in our lives, spiritual, physical, emotional, social, financial, material, that we can't turn around and say as a believer, God did that. God was the one that provided that. Every good and perfect gift is from above. James 1.17. You know, I've been reading a lot lately, a lot of history lately, and my reading has taken me into the 20th century, and and that was a dark time for humanity in a lot of spaces, and a lot of time, and a lot of places in the world. I mean, you start reading 20th century history, and you're coming face to face with Mao's China, and Mussolini's Italy, and you're thinking about Japanese oppression in Southeast Asia, and you're thinking about the suppression of voting rights here during the civil rights era, and you're thinking of dictatorships in South America, and they were awful, oppressive, poor, battered places to be. And the more you read history, the more you begin to realize sickness, poverty, and war is not the exception, but the rule. It's not like those things popped up here and there throughout history. It almost feels like that is history and it's rare to see a shining light of peace and security. And I think when we as believers look at that and are honest with what is happening in the world today and what's happening in history, we begin to ask the question, how how could God allow this to happen? How could a loving God allow such suffering, allow such poverty, allow such sickness? And that's a good and a wise question that we should ask as believers, and I think our Bibles will answer us. That's not the question we're asking today from Psalm 67. If that's what history is, and that's what much of the world experiences today, my question for us sitting here is why did God choose us, you and me in this room, to live at such a time and such a place that we would be some of the wealthiest, some of the healthiest, some of the longest living people ever to walk the face of the earth. Why would he choose me for that? Why would he choose you for that? 
You could have been born in a different latitude. You could have been born in a different decade and your life would be totally different. Why did he choose this place, this time, this wealth, this health, this relative security and peace for you and I to live in? And Psalm 67 says, he blessed us to bless others. He blessed us to bless others. God bless us, we pray in verse one. Verse two, that your way may be known on the earth, your saving power among all nations. I collect all these lavish blessings from God and share them freely with others so that verse four, the nations will be glad and sing for joy. Church, do we receive this blessing in such a way that the nations sing for joy? Are the nations happy that it is our time here and now to receive this blessing? Is that true of me? Is that true of my family? Is that true of this local church's budget? That the more we get and the more we get and the more we get, the happy our neighborhood and our nations are, they rejoice because they know that blessing is flowing outward to them too. Mike passed along a fire quote to me this week from an early church father, Basil the Great. And apparently the church has always struggled with sharing. That's not a toddler thing. That's a church thing for all human history. And he mocks the idea of just imagine people rushing to mine gold from the earth. It's under the earth and you've got to get in there and you've got to mine it and you've got to take it out. But then the moment you get it in your hands, what do you do but hide it away for yourself? And so he says this, a strange madness that when gold lies hidden with other metals, one ransacks the earth, but after it has seen the light of day, it disappears again beneath the ground. From this I perceive it happens to you that in burying your money, you bury your heart also. For where your treasure is, it is said, there your heart will be also. This is why the commandments cause sorrow, because hoarding treasure makes life unbearable for you. And it's like, dang, Basil, are you trying to shrink a church? Like, you can't say that today in our culture with our wealth that we hoard for ourselves. But Psalm 67 says it doesn't have to be that way. That's not the way it's intended to operate. And my family got schooled on the way Psalm 67 is supposed to work when we were serving as missionaries in South Asia. So my family served there before we came here and we had touched down in our city and we were trying to plant a church in the, in the big city and we were training pastors in the local areas. And so we bought a car reliable transportation and we brought it to the small tiny South Asian church we were attending and we showed up on Sunday and we worshiped like y'all do and then we jumped in our car and drove home and didn't say anything about it and lo and behold somehow the pastor found out that we had bought a car and didn't tell anybody about it and he confronted me and said that's not what you're supposed to do you're you're supposed to come to church and you're supposed to get up and announce to the church that you bought a car and give everybody candy and invite them to come see your car after church on Sunday. 
Can you imagine anything more un-American than standing on a stage and announcing in church your personal, family, private purchases that week and then parading them in front of everybody? And I said, why on earth would I get up in church and tell people I bought a car? And the pastor said, because we got a car. The church got a car and we want to celebrate that the church now has a new car for the church to use. I didn't even think that. I have never bought a truck in America because I don't want to help people move. And Psalm 67 is saying the opposite. Nobody calls you for your RAV4 to show up and move two boxes. Psalm 67 says, get a truck and share it with the church What you get becomes our corporate benefit and blessing. Whatever God is giving me, I am turning around and sharing with another person. Because in God's economy, his blessings are not a swamp, but a spring, right? They're not a swamp that hoards and festers and rots and moths eat and thieves break in and steal. It's a spring. It flows fresh and we can't give it away fast enough because there's a never-ending supply from where it came from and we're eager to give everything that we've been given. We are little springs as the local church because God is the great spring, the fount from whom all blessings flow. And when they flow into the church and they flow into our families and they flow into individuals, they flow out from us into our neighborhoods and onwards to the nations so that when God opens his hands of blessing, the church and the nations are glad and sing for joy. Let's pray together. Lord, let's try this. Let's ask you for lavish, free, generous blessing as you have already given us, that you would bless us as a local church, that you would bless our households, that you would bless our workplaces and our jobs, that you would bless our investments, that they would yield strong returns, that you would bless our health, that you would keep us as a church cancer-free, that you will bless our education, that we will grow to know and to learn and to succeed, that you will bless us that we might turn around and bless those you have providentially put in our path, that we would be little springs of the great spring, that great fount of blessing. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.